Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. And welcome to a Smart Talk road trip. Today we're coming to you from the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg. It's part of the Harrisburg Book Festival that runs through Sunday and includes appearances by several well-known, best-selling, and successful authors. That includes our guest on today's program. Eric Foner is a Pulitzer Prize winner who has written more than two dozen books that focus on American history, particularly the Civil War period, Reconstruction, and he has written about the American Revolution. Foner has been a member of the faculty at the, the Columbia University Department of History since 1982. Dr. Eric Foner, welcome to the program. Very nice to be here. Nice crowd for a Friday morning, huh? I'm impressed, yeah. It really is. For a lot of people to come out on a beautiful Friday morning, uh, I, I was saying to uh, Dr. Foner beforehand, this is like the biggest crowd I've ever seen here for, for an author, so that's good. We do not take phone calls during uh, the program for a Smart Talk road trip, but we do have a microphone set up that if anyone in the audience wants to ask a question of Dr. Foner, step right up to the microphone and you can do that. So the book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Why did you want to write this book? Well, uh, a number of reasons. Uh, this book is about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were added to the Constitution in the aftermath of the Civil War. We'll talk about them more specifically as we go along. But I guess I wrote this book, number one, because I feel that the importance of these amendments is not widely understood. If you ask your man or woman in the street you know, to name the key documents of American history, they'll talk about the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights, etc. But they'd rarely mention the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But I do feel that, you know, more public knowledge of them is needed and desirable because they really did transform our Constitution in fundamental ways. The Constitution we are living under today owes a great deal to those three amendments, not just to the original uh, document that was created by the framers in 1787. Well, the, the title itself, The Second Founding, and of course, of course the, the subtitle, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution, I mean, that is saying a lot when you, you think about uh, two, over 200 years, 230 years of the history of this country. It is that, those amendments are that important? Yes, they are. They, they really changed the Constitution from a document primarily concerned with the structure of the government and the relations between the federal government and the states into a document about individual Americans and their rights. And, their, and it put the concept of equality, equal protection of the law, into the Constitution for the first time. They made the Constitution something that anybody, any American of any race, gender, whatever, can use when they feel that their basic rights are being violated or they haven't achieved the kind of equality they want. So yes, it really changed the fundamental focus and purpose of our Constitution in uh, very dramatic ways. It also established the principle of who is a citizen of the United States, which had been very murky and undefined before the Civil War. The other point is simply that the issues that these amendments deal with are still you know, part of our lives today, whether it's who should be a citizen, that's being fought out on our border every day. Um, who should have the right to vote? I mean, states are still, I'm afraid, trying to suppress the right to vote, some states. Uh, it's not determined at all who actually should have the right to vote or not. How do you deal with terrorism? Um, not the terrorism we've had lately, but the Ku Klux Klan, groups like that, which flourished, unfortunately, in the Reconstruction South. So 
these issues are on our agenda today, as well as having been adjudicated 150 years ago. You know, earlier you said that if you ask people on the street about these three amendments, uh, most people probably wouldn't know a whole lot about, especially how they came about. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But if you abbreviated them, and that's what many people do with these three amendments, mm -hmm. it probably would be shortened to abolishing slavery, providing equal protection under the law, and giving citizens of the United States the right to vote. Oh, except women. And we'll talk about that as well. But as the book points out, there's so much more that went into crafting these amendments that, uh, that, as you said, still have repercussions today. Yeah, I mean, one might say that what these amendments try to do is to put into the Constitution the results of the Civil War. They come right after the most you know, tragic event in our history, the four-year Civil War, which led to 750,000 deaths of Americans, but also eradicated the institution of slavery, which was a blot on our society from the very beginning. Um, and, um, you know, it, the end of slavery created all these questions. Four million people had just become free. What was their role going to be in American society? Were they going to enjoy equality? Were they going to be citizens? Would they have a say in the political system? Um, as well as how should the southern states be brought back into the Union? Uh, so these amendments deal with things that are fundamental, equality, as I said, voting rights, freedom. They also deal with things that are kind of obscure today, like there's a provision that uh, southern slave owners will not get compensated for the loss of their slave property. You know, we talk about reparations today. There were a lot of people back then who thought the owners should get reparations, because after all, slaves were property. Uh, the 14th Amendment says, forget it. You're not getting any money for the loss of your slaves. Well, but something ironic about that is that Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, originally, before all this came about, before the amendments, and was it even before the Emancipation Proclamation? Absolutely, yes. That he was in favor of uh, some reparations or uh, paying the slave owners for the property they were losing. Right. And also colonization. Right. That the freed blacks would go somewhere, either a state or another country, correct? Liberia or Haiti or Central America. Yeah, Lincoln, for a long time, had this idea that the only way to get rid of slavery was with the cooperation of the slave owners, which was true before the war. You, the, slavery is created by state laws. If you're going to repeal those laws, the slave owners who run the political system in the South would have to approve. So he was thinking about what you might call um, sweeteners, you know, to get their cooperation. One was that this would be a gradual process over many decades, so it wouldn't be disruptive. The owners would get compensation, and the former slaves would be encouraged, not forced, but strongly encouraged to leave the country and go somewhere else because the slave owners did not want a new population of free Negroes, as they were called, um, you know, in their states. With the Emancipation Proclamation, all that changes because now slavery is abolished, uh, slaves are freed as a military measure and you don't need the cooperation of owners anymore. So the Proclamation and the 13th Amendment are immediate, no money for the owners, and he drops the idea of colonization. So one thing I would say about Lincoln is he had this capacity to change, to grow, to understand that in a crisis, new ideas are necessary, and that's what really is the essence of his greatness. 
the Emancipation Proclamation is looked upon, and rightly so, as a turning point in American history, <clears throat> and actually the Civil War, too, in mm -hmm. that the war then became about uh, slavery. Right. But the Emancipation Proclamation, and again, this is one of those things I see that many people on the street probably don't know, did not go a long way. The border states, for example, talk about that. Well, there were about 4 million slaves in 1860. The proclamation declared about 3.2 million of them free, which is a remarkable thing. But um, it was a military measure against the Confederacy. So as you said, the four border states, uh, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, they were slave states, but they remained in the Union. Uh, well, so the proclamation didn't apply to them. They were not at war with the United States. This is a military measure. And Lincoln also exempted, for complicated reasons, certain parts of the Confederacy. So there's basically three-quarters of a million slaves not affected by the Emancipation Proclamation. That's one of the reasons you need the 13th Amendment to eradicate slavery completely throughout the entire country. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you're looking for a trivia question at a party. Ask about the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you said for complicated reasons. I'm not going to get into that. But Tennessee... The entire state of Tennessee was exempted. Yes. Did that have something to do with Andrew Johnson being vice president? Uh, well, who it, was from Tennessee? At that point, Andrew Johnson was the military governor of ah, Tennessee. Okay. He had been okay. appointed by Lincoln. What, but but the this was because Andrew Johnson basically said, look, I'm trying to build support here for the union, and if you exempt Tennessee, some of these slave owners will you know, support my local government. And Lincoln said, all right, we'll give it a shot and see what happens. Um, but uh, it didn't work, and Tennessee had to ab actually did abolish slavery toward the very end of the Civil War. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a compl the, the proclamation is a political document, a military document at the same time, and Lincoln was a pretty savvy political leader, you know. So he thought exempting Tennessee would help bring Tennessee back into the Union. It didn't, though. <laughs> yeah, one of the most striking aspects of uh, the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, and one of the great debates at the time was states' rights versus the federal government. Uh, now, again, you, you'll still hear Southerners say that uh, states' rights was the reason behind the war to begin with. But as I read your book, I thought to myself, they really, the entire country, but especially the South, put so much stock into the rights of states because these were state laws and they feared a strong federal government. Even... Yeah. You know, almost 100 years after the Declaration of Independence, it made a nation. Right. Why? Well, as I said, slavery was created by state laws, and the southern states before the Civil War wanted to have as much autonomy as they could. But, you know, I would question the idea that they really believed in states' rights, because the most vigorous, ex uh, you know, expression of national power by Congress before the Civil War was the Fugitive Slave Act, which denied states' rights. It overturned laws of the northern states trying to make sure that people who were seized were actually fugitive slaves. It, it made it a federal crime to even refuse to help capture a fugitive slave. The South did not believe in states' rights. The South believed in slavery. When states' rights protected slavery, they were for states' rights. But when they wanted vigorous national intervention to protect slavery, 
they were perfectly in favor of that. And with the fugitive slave law, you had northern states crying states' rights and trying to nullify it. But by the Reconstruction era, which is what we're talking about here, at the end of the Civil most Northerners felt that state sovereignty, states' rights was one of the causes of the war. Not the only, you know, slavery was the cause of the war, but that what you needed was an assertion of federal power now to protect the rights of these four million former slaves. They didn't want to leave the fate of the emancipated slaves just to the southern states because it was pretty clear that if that happened, they would get no rights whatsoever. So it's certainly true that the three amendments were a departure from the tradition of, 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 of federalism, which exalted the right to the powers of the states. Um, they empower the federal government. Each of the three amendments ends with a clause saying, Congress will have the power to enforce this. It's now the national government which is responsible for the rights of individual citizens, not the states anymore. That's a fundamental shift in our political system. Mm. Now, you explain the specific reasons that states at one time or the other supported states' rights. But was that part of the tradition that just 90 years earlier that the United States became independent from a monarchy and did not want to see that strong, powerful central well, government. Yeah, well, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the founders, uh, most Americans at the time of the revolution believed that the greatest danger to individual liberty was a too powerful national government. You're right, a monarchy like in England. They wanted local autonomy, but not too much. After all, there was a constitution before the constitution, the Articles of Confederation, but in that one, the national government had virtually no power. And the, 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 the framers, like James Madison and Hamilton and others, uh, they thought that things had gone too far in that direction. They wanted a stronger national government. That's why we have the constitution, because the constitution of the Articles of Confederation, they felt, was too weak. But then, of course, people complain, you're making it too strong, so they added the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, which lists all our you know, basic liberties, um, is a restriction on the federal government. Congress shall make no law. That's the first words. It had nothing to do with the states until after the Civil War. States could, have a, could suppress freedom of speech. Many of them did before the Civil War. That, was not, that did not violate the... A bill of rights. So you have a, a kind of a strange thing with a stronger federal government, but also all these restrictions on the federal government uh, to make sure that they didn't, it didn't trample on people's liberties. But with the Reconstruction Amendments, as I said, the power shifts away from the states. Now the states are seen as the danger to liberty. And the federal government, as Charles Sumner, the great senator from Massachusetts, said, is the custodian of freedom now. That's a big shift from the revolutionary era. We're going to talk more about, uh, specifically about the amendments themselves in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We are on a Smart Talk road trip today at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg. It is the second day of the Harrisburg Book Festival. It will run through uh, Sunday and uh, just a whole lot going on, a whole lot of uh, prestigious, best-selling, uh, successful authors will be speaking over the next uh, few days, so I encourage you to, to stop out, including our uh, guest on today's program, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Eric Foner. His new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction 
remade the Constitution. And today's Smart Talk Road Trip live remote broadcast is supported by Roof Advisory Group. Now, we are not taking phone calls today during our Smart Talk Road Trip, but uh, we have a, an audience. I was about to say a studio audience, but uh, we do not have a studio audience. We have an audience <laughs> uh, that we encourage those who are in the audience to ask questions. And I understand we have uh, a member of the audience uh, right now who has a question. Sir, uh, your name and uh, where are you from? George from Gettysburg. Dr. Foner, congratulations on your book, your Thank many you. books, and your presence here. Um, you, a few minutes ago, mentioned the protections under the, these three constitutional amendments for recently freed slaves at that time. Could you expand a little bit on that with relation to uh, Jim Crow and the black codes? Well, uh, yes, the, the, the black codes that this gentleman refers to were laws that were enacted right after the Civil War. Andrew Johnson, who uh, succeeded to the presidency when Lincoln was assassinated, and um, we had this discussion last night. Andrew Johnson has a good claim to being the worst president in American history, although there are other contenders. <laughs> um, but uh, Johnson is certainly one of them. Um, and he established these new governments in the South, totally controlled by whites, with blacks having basically no rights whatsoever. And they enacted these black codes, which were very discriminatory legislation uh, against blacks. And that was one of the reasons Congress said, we got to have these amendments, we, because the states are running amok and they're refusing to accept the end of slavery, fundamentally. And that led directly to the 14th Amendment. But the other part of your question, Jim Crow, which is the system of white supremacy which was put in place after the end of Reconstruction in the later, late 19th century. Um, I talk about this in the book in the final chapter. One of the lessons, sadly, here is that rights in the Constitution are not self-enforcing. Somebody has to enforce them. And if they're not enforced, they can be nullified, and that's what happened. These rights are fundamental, but the Supreme Court in the late 19th century allowed the southern states basically to just nullify the right to vote for black people, equality before the law for black people. That's part of the Jim Crow system. And um, it took a long, long time for those amendments to be, you know, to be enforced, not until the civil rights era uh, were they again invigorated. So one of the lessons here is the old adage, you know, um, you have to be vigilant about your freedom. You can't just take it for granted. Well, there is a lot there that we're going to talk about, too, because the Supreme Court plays a big role in how these amendments were enforced. But I want to read the uh, 13th Amendment. Uh, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall be have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, the part I want to pick out there, I mean, that sounds cut and dried, but the part I want to pick out there that you write about in the book is that part about uh, accept as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Laws were made, especially throughout the South, that would convict African Americans, blacks, of crimes so that it didn't apply that they still were in servitude, right? Yeah, yes, that, that is a sad fact. Um, the criminal exemption. You know, it's a good example of the fact that historians write with at least one eye on the present because for many decades, nobody paid any attention to that, really. Books on the 13th Amendment didn't even mention it. 
But today, of course, there's a lot of attention to mass incarceration, prison labor. There was that uh, documentary a couple of years ago, 13th, maybe you've seen it, about this question. And suddenly, scholars are looking into it. The, that language actually originated long before with Thomas Jefferson. It comes directly from his land ordinance that he proposed in 1784, uh, uh, that there would be no slavery in the Western territories except as a criminal punishment. Um, I didn't even, I was trying to figure out why did Jefferson put that language in? And I called two of my good friends, who uh, one of them I went to graduate school with, who's written a lot about Jefferson, and I said, they're scholars, you know, of Jefferson. Well, why did Jefferson put this in there? And they both gave me the same answer. I haven't the slightest idea. Um, so, uh, but it had become almost boilerplate by the, by the Reconstruction. Nobody paid attention to it even then. There was no debate in Congress over it. But the result, it was a loophole that unintentionally allowed, again, in the Jim Crow era, allowed Southern states to just convict black people. You know, you steal a chicken, you're sentenced to 10 years in jail, and then you can be leased out, the so-called convict lease system. You can be sent to work for a plantation, a mines, you know, in a railroad building or whatever. And uh, the, this was a terrible system of exploitation. Most, not only white criminals were also put there, but mostly black. Uh, and it shows you that, you know, uh, some people talk about what they call original intent of the, of, of the Constitution, but here you have something that was unintended, but became a very serious problem, uh, and the language of the 13th Amendment sort of seemed to allow that. Uh, follow me here, because I'm jumping around, but uh, something that Dr. Foner just mentioned, uh, jumping to uh, the 15th Amendment, okay. where Section 1 says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Uh, we will talk about women didn't count in that a little bit later, but the reason I jump to that is because what many states, and still exist in, in many states, that if you have been convicted of a crime, a felony in particular, you couldn't vote. Right. So that's uh, also that the 15th Amendment, which is meant to give black men the right to vote, was a remarkable change in American political system. Before the Civil War, virtually no state allowed black men to vote. Pennsylvania didn't from, seven, from uh, 1837 onward. Illinois didn't. Ohio didn't. A few of the New England states did, but there were hardly any black people there. But now African-American men, or at least what it says in a negative way, states cannot deny you the right to vote because of race. Okay, they can't just have laws anymore saying white people can vote and black people can't. But what about other kinds of laws which don't mention race? What about poll taxes? What about literacy tests? What about, yeah, having been convicted of a crime? Now, how do you know whether something is because of race or not? Uh, now, back then, it was pretty clear because the people who passed these laws in the South uh, were fairly forthright about what they were yeah. doing. They would have these constitutions. They say, "We are here to deny the Negro the right to vote." That was. They were explicit about what they were doing. But we can't just say black people can't vote because that would violate the Fifteenth Amendment. So we're going to do it through circumlocutions. Supreme Court again said, mm, "We can't do anything about this. Sorry, if black people can't vote, that's their problem." You know, 
Uh, Giles v. Harris, not a famous case, 1903, one of the worst cases in of Supreme Court history. They just threw up their hands and said, there's nothing we can do about it. The Constitution is being abrogated in the South, and the Supreme Court says, well, don't look at us. Someone else has to deal with it. So, um, you know, but that's because those laws didn't specifically mention race. But even today with these voter suppression laws, it's clear that they are directed against some kinds of voters a lot more than others, but they don't mention race, and therefore the courts have said, well, um, you know, it doesn't violate the 15th Amendment. So, again, what the Constitution is, is what the Supreme Court says it is. Uh, and unfortunately, lately, they have been whittling away at the 15th Amendment again. The Shelby County case, where they pretty much overturned the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that's a 15th Amendment case. And again, when you have a conservative Supreme Court, they can wreak a lot of havoc with our basic constitutional rights. All right, I'm going to give you an opportunity, and we will be with our audience member in just a moment, but uh, you in particular, we had this conversation off the air. Texas, okay, this is kind of an aside. You're hearing <laughs> something you probably have heard nowhere else. I'll give you your opportunity. Texas should lose a member of their, of their congressional delegation. That's my position, although I don't expect it to be uh, implemented, but um, the, the second section, or the second clause of the 14th Amendment, which came before the 15th, obviously, right, right. didn't give black men the right to vote, but it said if a state denies you, the, denies any group of men the right to vote, they lose some of their representatives in Congress. Okay, so let's say Mississippi, which is about half black and half white, if they deny black men the right to vote, they lose half their congressmen. This was an incentive for them to keep their political power. All right. There are states today which are suppressing the right to vote. Now, I take Texas because Texas has a lot of congressmen, like 35 or something. They have laws restricting the right to vote in certain respects. My position is the 14th Amendment is very clear. If, since there's only, this is 30, all they need to do is suppress 3% of the voters, and they should lose a member of Congress because of that proportion. Um, it's supposed to be automatic. It's never been enforced, unfortunately. When the southern states abrogated the right to vote for blacks, they never lost any of their congressmen. But um, I think that threat ought to be out there because it, should it would encourage states to actually expand the right to vote, not restrict it. But if you want to join my club, the deprived <laughs> Texas of a, of a congressman club, come on in. <laughs> we have a member of the audience has a question. Uh, hi, Fletcher McClellan. I'm a political scientist from Elizabethtown College. Uh, welcome, Professor Foner. Um, uh, the president who followed uh, Andrew Johnson was, was Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, yes. And um, an interesting thing has happened to his reputation, I think, in part because of your work and Ron Chernow and others. Uh, he was once regarded as one of our worst presidents, and now uh, maybe one of our better ones. And uh, could you talk about his role during Reconstruction and maybe a little bit about the uh, process of uh, revisionism? Yeah, well, first of all, revisionism is the brand name of historians, you know? I mean, that's our job, is to come up with new ideas. There is a sort of general s sense that the term revisionist historian is sort of a criticism, right? An insult. That's just revisionist history. But actually, that's what we do. Otherwise, we'd just be writing the same thing over and over again, which kind of gets kind of boring. But um, Grant, yes, why has Grant's reputation risen? 
Um, because the, the standards by which historians judge these things have changed. It used to be political corruption. There was a lot of corruption in the Grant administration, not him personally, but he certainly put some people of very shady uh, moral standing into key offices. Um, maybe historians have come to the conclusion that there's always corruption, actually. <laughs> you look around, you know. So uh, I'm not talking about the government of Harrisburg, but uh, the United States <laughs> government. Um, well, that's but, good. All right. But, um, you know, now Grant is judged on the basis of Reconstruction. Grant tried to enforce the law. He, he supported the 15th Amendment very strongly, its ratification. He, when Congress passed laws to enforce the, these rights, Grant sent troops into the South, 1871. He sent troops to South Carolina, which crushed the Ku Klux Klan there. So that was, you know, a vigorous enforcement of the basic rights of American citizens. Later, however, Grant couldn't do that anymore, at least felt he couldn't. Later in his second term, when there was more violence in the South, uh, he felt that Northern public opinion was shifting away from this principle of equality. But I think as historians have become more attuned to the ups and downs of racial history in this country, Grant's reputation has risen. And then, as I said, Andrew Johnson, who was about as deeply racist as any president we've had, his reputation has fallen very dramatically because now he's being judged by that standard. Did he do anything to help promote racial justice or not? And certainly Johnson did not. You know, it's generally considered maybe universally considered that Grant had the best presidential memoir. Oh, absolutely. Has that helped to uh, make his reputation better? Well, as people, if you read, Grant's memoir is a great work of American literature. It's, it's really remarkable. And um, uh, usually you're judging what he did in those eight years as president. So his career as a general doesn't quite affect how you view him as president. And he wrote the memoir, of course, in the 1880s after he was out of office. But yeah, I mean, I think um, historians like someone who knows how to write well. Uh, I wish many of our historians could write as well as Grant did. <laughs> Uh, read the 13th and 14th, or excuse me, 13th and 15th Amendment. Uh, there are several sections to uh, the 14th, so I won't read them all, but uh, Section 1 All persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, how this is abbreviated is citizenship rights, equal protection under the law, apportionment for congressional districts, and civil war debt. It goes on to talk about that. But uh, the, the one thing in there that I wanted to, to follow up on is something you talked about earlier, that there really was no definition of what a citizen of the United States was. Right. Why not? And how did these amendments identify what a citizen was? The, the original Constitution uses the word citizen a dozen times, more or less, but never defines who is a citizen of the United States. Um, there's a sort of general assumption that people born in the country are citizens if they're white. Nobody questioned the citizenship of a white farmer born here in Pennsylvania. You know, 
But what about free black people? Before the Civil War, that was completely murky. Some states recognized free black people as citizens. Massachusetts gave them pretty close to equal rights. Many states didn't, though, said, no, they're not citizens. In fact, some states, Illinois, Indiana, had laws prohibiting free black people from even entering the state. That doesn't seem like they're American citizens. Or free. Or free, even. Well, you can be free, but not in our state. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and, of course, in 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court basically said, forget it. No black person can be a citizen. Citizenship is for whites only. So being born in the country is not enough. You have to be of a certain race to be a citizen. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment overturns all that. Anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. Doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter what your religion is. Relevant today, it doesn't matter who your parents are. President Trump, in one of his more provocative, let us say, statements, um, you know, has said he could abrogate this first sentence of the 14th Amendment when it comes to children born whose mother, let us say, is an undocumented immigrant. So the child, the woman is not a citizen, but the child born in the United States certainly is, according to this language, and yet the president has said, oh, with an executive order, I could just eliminate all that. The idea that the president with an executive order can just take sentences out of the Constitution is a kind of alarming thought. But, um, but that is still debated today. But yes, this is the first definite legal definition of who is a citizen of the United States. And this birthright citizenship is a basic principle of our country today. And it's rather unique. There is no country in Europe today which has automatic birthright citizenship. Um, if you're the child, let's say, of a Turkish immigrant in Germany, you're not necessarily a German citizen. You have to go through a whole rigmarole of tests and things. If you're the child of a German, you're automatically. So um, we don't have those kinds of ethnic, linguistic, or racial definitions of citizenship, and uh, that's something that makes our country unique. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're on a Smart Talk road trip today. Today's Smart Talk road trip live remote broadcast is supported by Roof Advisory Group. We're at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg as part of Harrisburg Book uh, Festival. This is the seventh Seventh uh, Harrisburg Book Festival, and uh, a lot of activities throughout the weekend, including the tent sale that is going on right now outside the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, where you can find some uh, uh, some real bargains. Put it that way. It's somewhere I'm going to head right after uh, right after the broadcast today. Our guest is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and historian Eric Foner. His new book is The Second Founding: How the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution. We have a studio audience here, a nice crowd, and I understand we have a, a, another question from an audience member. Sir, your name, I, I can't tell if you're a sir or a madam. Uh, <laughs> your, uh, your name and where you're from. Leo from Harrisburg. You are, you are her, or him then. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, okay. Uh, do you have an estimate on how many people from school teachers to former slaves were murdered during this period? There was a lot of violence in the Reconstruction South. That is correct. Uh, there's not, nobody keeps count of that exactly. Um, 
I've seen, you know, between the Klan and other such groups, it wasn't just the Ku Klux Klan, the White League, the Red Shirts, the Rifle Clubs, the all sorts of local organizations, they were united in their commitment to white supremacy, restoring it in the post-Civil War South, and using violence, terrorism, to uh, achieve that end. Um, I've seen estimates of three or 4,000 people killed. I, you know, there's no official sum, but put it this way, more people, more American citizens were murdered in Reconstruction in the, by these groups than died on 9-11 at the hands of Osama bin Laden and his uh, crew. Uh, so that might give us a sense of the scale of, 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 what, of the kind of violence that was taking place. We have another uh, question. I'm Mike from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, twice in the Constitution it mentioned that uh, the federal government would put down the um, uh, insurrections and rebellions. Had that happened, would slavery have ended? If it actually meant it's true. Uh, true. Uh, yeah, well, Article you know, 1, the, Section the, 8, Clause the, 15. The, the clause about putting down rebellions was actually mostly there because of the South. They wanted, if necessary, federal intervention, if there was a slave rebellion. In other words, they were frightened of slave insurrections. After all, right around, the, just after the Constitution was ratified, there was this massive slave insurrection in Haiti, which scared the heck out of a lot of um, uh, people in the United States. Uh, you, you never had federal troops used uh, really in large numbers against insurrections, although Robert E. Lee was there to arrest John Brown, you know, in the... 1859. Uh, uh, in the 1859. Um, in Reconstruction, as I said, General Grant, uh, President Grant, did use American troops to try to crush what they thought of as an insurrection of the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that. But it's rarely, uh, you know, it, rarely in American history has uh, federal power been used against local insurgencies, although on occasion it was. The Whiskey Rebellion in this state, for example. Mm. Uh, before we get to another question here, uh, you know, something that uh, many people, again, don't think of, but think of the math here, that if black men are given the right to vote in the South, that increases the population of the South. And would mean that there would be more representation in Congress, or could be more representation in Congress. So just think about this. The North, the uh, Union has just won a war against the South, but if you go by the numbers, the South could have more political power because of right. blacks voting. Let so, me slightly correct you, okay, although right. uh, not uh, as a teacher, I have to say, right, you know. Okay. Um, but your basic point is absolutely right. Before the Civil War, you had the three-fifths clause that basically slaves accounted in representation by uh, three-fifths of their number accounted. This gave the South considerable extra power in uh, Congress. Now these slaves are free. You've got these four million people. Now all of them are going to be counted. Whether they vote or not, it makes no difference. Uh, it, they're free. The whole, they're part of the population now. And um, so the South will actually get extra congressmen because you go from three-fifths to all of them being counted in allocating uh, members of Congress. That's why that second clause was put into the uh, 14th Amendment that, well, if they don't give blacks the right to vote, they'll lose some of their Congress. It's, it's the same basic idea, uh, but it was never enforced. So yes, one ironic result of the end of slavery was to give the South more political power in Washington. 
That's one of the reasons why, you know, ultimately Congress decided, since it's been proven under Andrew Johnson that these all-white governments are just no good, we've got to give black men the right to vote, because then you'll get biracial governments, governments that represent the whole population of the South, not just part of it, and then it's all right if they have representation in Congress because there'll be people who, res who respect the rights of all of their citizens. Um, so once you get real interracial democracy flourishing in the South for the first time in American history, then the question of representation isn't quite so pressing. You have a question, sir? Hold on just oh. one second. There okay. you go. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tyler Stump. I'm an archivist at the State Archives down the street. Great. Um, I was, and I've read your books in grad school, so it's really nice to meet you in person. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what the Pennsylvania experience during Reconstruction was, because usually we think of this as a southern thing, but it obviously impacted us in the Keystone State, too. Mm. This is like being back on my orals exam <laughs> and wondering what to do when I don't know the answer. <laughs> Uh, I think the point of the question is a very good one, and in fact, scholars lately have been expanding their definition of Reconstruction, so it's not just about the old Confederate South, but they're looking at the West, you know, what was happening in Indian relations, how did the Chinese in California figure into these debates about citizenship and voting rights, and um, yeah, the North was undergoing, quote, a kind of Reconstruction, it wasn't the same as in the South, one thing about the 15th Amendment, it applied to the whole country. Black men in Pennsylvania got the right to vote because of the 15th Amendment. They didn't have it before the 15th Amendment. So the, the black community of Pennsylvania is empowered for the first time to take part in political, uh, you know, in, in the political system. Um, but, you know, and, and the same impetus, one of the things we haven't really talked about, there's this kind of grassroots demands for equal rights flourishing all over the country, including in Pennsylvania. As you know, I'm sure in Philadelphia, you had all these fights about whether blacks would be allowed on the city streetcars, right? They, before the Civil War, they didn't allow black people to be on the streetcars. They had to walk if they wanted to go somewhere. Um, now they're saying, well, we are citizens. We deserve the same rights as anyone else. This is one of the privileges of citizenship mentioned in the 14th Amendment. So the the thrust toward equality, which is the basic story of Reconstruction, as far as I'm concerned, uh, flourishes in a state like Pennsylvania as well as in the uh, former Confederate South. We've mentioned several times that this applied, these amendments applied to men, uh, white men and uh, black men. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, one of the women suffragist movements, uh, one of the leaders, she uh, was very tight with uh, Susan B. Anthony, as we, we, yeah. we know her more than we do Elizabeth Cady Stanton today. Uh, she said, you quote her in the book, saying the 15th Amendment would place the ignorant Chinaman, the Germans who harnessed their wives to the plow with cows and horses, and the southern Negroes as rulers over educated women. Now, obviously, there's some racist resentment there, <laughs> yeah. and us versus them, and a view that women were losing ground toward their right to vote. Well, it, it's, it's complicated, as everything is. Um, the, she's talking there about the 15th Amendment. As I said, the 15th Amendment says a, you, a state can't deny you the right to vote because of race. 
They wanted the word sex in there too. They wanted to say you can't deny people the right to vote because of sex as well as race. Um, it, for complicated reasons, it's not in there. The Congress, well, Congress is all men, and they, they, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. But um, there's nothing in the 15th Amendment that says a state cannot give women the right to vote. This, it, it says, it's, it leaves it on the hands of the states who votes and who doesn't, except they can't bar you on the basis of race. And in fact, later in the century, several states do give women the right to vote, right? The western states, uh, Wyoming and, you know, uh, a couple of them. But, um, but the larger point is, you're, you're quite right, that um, this, what you see here is a split. You know, the, the, the early feminist movement grew out of the abolitionist movement. It cooperated with the abolitionists. All those early feminists were also anti-slavery. And um, now you have this split where they feel that they've been betrayed by their radical Republican allies, you know, who stand for principle. They stand for universal rights. And yet um, they're not willing to support women having the right to vote. On the other hand, the first section of the 14th Amendment doesn't say anything about women or men. Equal protection, that's for everybody. Due process, that's for everybody. One of our favorite members of the Supreme Court, Justice Ginsburg, she made her career in applying the 14th Amendment to discrimination on the basis of gender. That can happen because there is no mention of, of gender in the first section of the 14th Amendment. There's no mention of race either. It applies to everybody. And everybody can, tr and can try to use these amendments to, to enhance their rights as Americans. I just want to mention this because we are starting to get uh, short on time. But uh, part of what Elizabeth Cady Stanton said there, even the biggest supporters right. of black suffrage did not want Chinese men to vote. Chinese were subject to intense discrimination. I mean, it's, I would always tell my students, you know, this is one of the most remarkable changes in, our, in my lifetime, seeing how anti-Chinese sentiment has sort of, vis-a-vis -vis Chinese Americans. Nowadays, a lot of people complaining about China, but um, that has disappeared. The Chinese used to be considered completely beyond the pale. And the night, even into the, it was only in the 1940s that people from China could become naturalized citizens at all. That's gone now. The Chinese are now, Chinese Americans are now admired for hard work, for academic accomplishment, econo you know, economic achievement, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's actually encouraging to think that deeply rooted prejudices can actually be upended. Uh, we touched on this earlier, but in our last uh, three minutes or so, wanted because this is such a big part of it, and it changed this country uh, immensely, and that is how the Supreme Court interpreted these amendments. You know, you mentioned earlier that Supreme Court rulings led to Jim Crow laws. What rulings did, Supreme, did the Supreme Court make over the years that really had a negative impact as a result of these uh, amendments? Well, one could go, I don't want to just list a whole lot of uh, decisions, but just a couple of them. The, even during Reconstruction, the so-called slaughterhouse cases, I'm not going to go into the details, but the courts, remember, you, the 14th Amendment says, no state can deny you the privileges or immunities of what comes along with being a citizen. What, is it just a badge you get, I'm a citizen, or are there substantive rights? Supreme Court said, no, forget it. You got no rights as a citizen. No national rights. No rights that the federal government can enforce. All your rights still come from the states as before the war, as if nothing has happened. 
we had a civil war, they never heard about that, you know. So um, they eviscerated the privileges or immunities clause by saying they're all state uh, issues, not federal issues. Um, Crookshank, they made it very difficult for the federal government to go after the Klan and private acts of violence. They said, no, no, you know, these amendments are only about public authorities. If individuals go out and kill each other, that's not our problem. You know, federal government doesn't have to do with it. It's a state thing. States have to do with it. Plessy v. Ferguson later on, remember, this is a state. Here's a law saying black people have to be in one car of a railroad, whites in another. Supreme Court said, no problem, no problem. Separate but equal, even though they never were equal. Uh, black people are over here, whites are over there. And if blacks don't like that, they're just oversensitive. They, they complain too much. I wish they basically, by then, they're saying, why don't they just shut up already? And this is the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, yeah. This is the Supreme Court, which is supposed to protect our basic liberties. Yeah. yeah. So one could go on and on, but that is a important part of this story, the Supreme Court's retreat. Dr. Foner, I want to thank you very much for being with us today and visiting Harrisburg. But one thing you say in the book that in the last uh, 30 seconds or so that we have, that Reconstruction never ended. Because we're still debating these questions. Reconstruction is about how will this country adjust to the end of slavery. We haven't quite managed to do that yet. A hundred and 55 years later, we're still adjusting. Yeah. <laughs> so when people say about the say the Constitution is a living, breathing document, I, I guess that uh, kind of is what you're saying. It, well, it certainly is, and it should be. And I continue to hope that in the future, a slightly different Supreme Court might breathe more life into a lot of elements of these amendments. Uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Eric Foner. His new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Dr. Foner, thank you very much for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thank all of you for being with us today. Coming up on Monday, we're going to talk about roundabouts and why they're safer here in Pennsylvania. Have a good weekend.